Hello and welcome to Brain Trust Live number 476. This week on the podcast, Jeremy Payne from Catalyst California is here to explain how we can reform the LA City Council. Plus, Joe Biden is being beaten by a wax figure in the latest 2024 polls. And Democratic brains fell into a wormhole this week. Plus, read the room, Nancy. And New Mexico experiments with a new gun control tactic, actually trying something. We'll have all this and more. This is Brain Trust Live. Hey, y'all, I'm Brent. I'm Lila, and you can find us on the web at www.braintrustlive.com. That's right. So you may know that it's a week past Labor Day, but what you may not know is that the New York City Labor Day Parade happens on the Saturday after Labor Day for reasons no one can identify. You know what? You have been telling me for a while that you were going to be going to this, and I asked no questions, even though I had them. <laughs> I, I bet. <laughs> I bet you had them. And I... Uh, was asked them by many people as I announced to everyone that I would be marching in the Labor Day Parade. I think the first question was why, because I'm not in a union. But I just feel like as somebody who belongs in a union, even though I'm not in a union, I'm like a critical part of the Labor Day Parade. I think that's clear. <laughs> I think so. So too. I went with my mom, who is in a union, um, and marched with her union, and you know, noticed some exciting things. Among them, that the electrical, the electricians showed up on Harley's. And with oh, hey. leather electrician's jackets. So that was a oh, pretty like exciting that. one. Yeah. Weirdly, the police and fire unions basically didn't show up. So I wonder if Eric Adams was like, don't be showing up to this, which is like, well, they're awful. first of all, the Labor Day Parade is not for spectators. It is just for like, essentially municipal workers, but now all other unions to like, have a day for themselves. They just get to like, march in a parade that has no viewers. Really and then they wave comes. to each other. Nobody comes to the Labor Day Parade. The Labor Day, the only people that would come to the Labor Day Parade are in the Labor Day Parade. It's not a right. parade for spectators. You know when people might come to the Labor Day Parade? On Labor Day. Yes. Yeah. No, one of the things about it's surprise nature is part of why no one comes <laughs> to the Labor Day Parade. <laughs> but it's funny, like people like, you know, the Teamsters brought like a ton of trucks and then they were just honking the horns of the truck. So it sounded like a traffic jam was coming. Um, for some reason, like people bring like marching bands because of the municipal unions having so many cops and firemen, there's a lot of like bagpipes involved or whatever. The teachers union always brings the all city, you know, marching band or whatever. They also brought a DJ though, who kept having, who kept in the middle of like their DJ sets being like, this is the UFT, a union for professionals, but like, as if they were announcing like, you know, like a DJ name or something. Uh -huh. <laughs> so that was funny. Um, and also confusing because one thing that was uh, repeatedly said over and over by that DJ was that the UFT, which is a teacher's union, is a union of professionals. And I was like, can that be your motto? You're not just <laughs> your teachers. Like, I mean, that is a kind yeah. of professional, but like the also, fact that you keep, you're not a union of accountants. Like the, you, right. you're not just any professionals. Also how professional can you be while being continually introduced by a DJ. By a DJ. <laughs> that was a question I had yeah. um, that I felt not uh, qualified to answer. I'm going to think about that a lot this week. There were some interesting sites, though. One was that the plumbers union was like, like turned out and Love the crowd that. that was marching was like 50% women. So Amazing. that was kind of interesting. Fun. Um, there, the UAW, which were, you know, uh, we'll probably talk about it more next week, but the UAW might be about to go on strike, but the UAW here is mostly um, uh, adjunct professors. <laughs> so they 
had a big showing in part, that's a union that my father's in, but they had a big showing in part because they did go on strike last year. So the UAW locally has uh, struck just recently and was part of the, I think the lead up to hot labor summer because UAW strike was, I think last spring or last winter. And that was right before, you know, we got word that all of Hollywood was going to go on strike. And then, you know, here we are months later and just seems like everyone's doing it. Seems like we're going to have a hot labor fall too. I know it seems here's, I think late stage capitalism might create like a hot labor year or or decade. Um, And I was thinking about like, really remember like a few years ago when we were reporting on those teacher strikes that were kind of decentralized because they weren't even really unionized teacher strikes. Uh Like, I think that we owe a lot of this action to teachers, which is, I, I think something that no one, no one is sort of acknowledging because I, well, I think teachers and also Amazon, I mean, there's other people that were kind of involved in that lead up. Um, I think, you know, the Starbucks union, I think a lot of the, um, the fast food workers unions, but like part of what led us to this moment of hot labor year Mm -hmm. is the fact that I think there was something really powerful about a group of teachers that were not even really effectively being represented by a union going on strike. Cause it turns out you can strike in a right to work state because you're allowed, you can collectively do anything with your coworkers and friends anywhere. They can't actually outlaw that. They can outlaw a lot of the kind of, you know, specific structure around it, but like you can still have, you know, you, you can still have solidarity with other workers, even in even if you yourself have been robbed of union representation, which I think was like an exciting development. And part of why everyone was like, should we just unionize new stuff? Like, you know, yeah, totally. since once you're like, oh, if we can, if teachers can strike without a union, then can like, we can unionize a Starbucks in a right to work state. Like, that totally. can, it's not impossible. No, anyway, it's not. I, 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 my, my only request is that we have, instead of a hot fall, a hot labor fall <laughs> is Cold that labor we fall? have yeah can we have like a like a, a super cool labor fall please <laughs> that almost died I know, it's too fucking hot too hot it's it's too hot everywhere it's been humid on a level that's not acceptable here no i walked past a tree that was losing its leaves and i was like get a grip also maybe you're about not- to have like a level five hurricane or something like what's going on with yeah. that oh my god the weather here has been crazy it's oh my Lord. it's not and i've already lived through a hurricane this year i have enough on my plate <laughs> that's you right. know it's yeah, enough you don't need any more of this I don't need any more of that. Yeah, it's outrageous. Um, so um, in any case, it, we'll talk next week if UAW does go yeah. on strike, but happy late Labor Day. <laughs> sure. Happy New York City Labor Day. Labor Day parade, right, yeah. yeah. Um, maybe we're getting new boosters this week. We don't yeah. know. I'm getting them the moment that a person is getting 100%, them. 100%, right. I'm going to yeah. be in a pharmacy the moment that those boosters are available. Yeah, the federal government may not be telling you that you should do that, but we here at right. Brain Trust Live are telling you that you should do that, and we will we be should, doing that as well. Yeah, you should be doing what um, I think Live, all people- Live, beg, borrow, steal, whatever you have to do. Yeah, no, if you need to knock down old ladies or whatever, like just get in there and get your booster. Yeah. I, one of the reasons that they're acting like they're wishy-washy about regular people who are not either elderly or immunocompromised getting them is because they keep doing this thing where they're like, well, the benefit isn't shown to be as big in reg, you know, in, in non-immunocompromised, non-elderly populations. I and I have two things if to I say get, about that. If I get like if a, a 2% tiny, bump in exactly. the antibodies, then I'm straight. This is the I'm, same sh- logic that's causing people to stop masking, which is just like, totally. if, you know, I was just talking to someone today who was like, well, I don't really mask if I'm on the subway with friends who aren't masking. I only do it privately. And I was like, you realize you're like minimizing the exposure, even if you're only masking yourself. 
Like if you're on the subway with 14 friends and you're the only one masking, then only 13 people are exposing themselves to COVID of those 14 (laughs) instead of all 14 people. That's still helping. If the, if the booster is not providing like a 17 fold reaction in you because you're not elderly or immunocompromised, that's okay because it's still improving your chances of not getting COVID or not dying of COVID when you do get COVID. So like, don't worry about the details is is it going to help mitigate your risk? That's the question you should be asking yourself. That's right. And is it in exchange for mitigating your risk? Is it mitigating all of our risk? That's the other question you should be asking yourself. Yeah. Are you like yeah. helping society by getting it? And the answer is yes, because everyone is helped by everyone mitigating their risk to whatever degree they can. Right. Even if it's minimal. Even if it's minimal. Just if everybody does that. Do your best. Then we're in better shape. Yeah. It's And this is one thing that I have been thinking about a lot is I think maybe I've mentioned on the podcast before, but I feel like COVID gets, because so many things in our lives are zero sum, COVID gets framed as a zero sum game where it's like, you know, if someone else is getting it, then I'm at less risk kind of like you, you don't think about the reality of the fact that the reason COVID mitigations should be undertaken by all of us is because we can all have COVID at once. Yeah. So there's not, your risk is not mitigated COVID right, in the world by where other only people a elsewhere. Of po- the population is going to get it. Yes. And it, I think we're accustomed to thinking about resources that way. And so we're, we forget that disease doesn't work that way. Yeah. Like the reason you take you, the reason you protect yourself is because you can have COVID infinity times and everyone can have it at once. So right. like mitigating your risk slightly actually is good for you and everybody because just it just means less COVID is circulating. Right. Just ask Ed Sheeran. Exactly. Uh, hasn't he had COVID like eight times? Just like that, yeah, I think some, times. yeah. It's like, first of all, wear a mask, Ed Sheeran. This, uh, this is a problem. But also like if be the one person in your subway group of 14 friends wearing a mask, because that minimizes the amount of COVID spread, which is actually good for you. Do it selfishly. Totally. Don't yeah. even worry about your friends. They're out yeah. there breathing, coughing on each other. That's their business, but do it for yourself. <laughs> um, we're, we're also going to have some updates on court case stuff. Uh, specifically, now we have some updates about Mark Meadow and Lindsey Graham. We're going to talk about all that next week when we yeah. have a better handle on it. Um, yeah, because we, we feel, yeah, when we have we a better handle on it. And also, it sort of is ongoing. So it's sort of, you know, exactly. we feel like we'll probably have more things to say about it next week. We'll have more um, insight right. next week. Yeah, but we're sort of keeping it a little tight this week because we have a really fun interview coming up later yeah. um, in the podcast with Jeffrey Payne, who is from Cattles, California. He's also my boyfriend. So that was yeah. fun. Um, but we're going to talk about- It's not about, just um, nepotism that got him here because he had a story to tell that we were interested in hearing. Yeah, he's more <laughs> qualified to be performing on a podcast than I am. Let's let's face it. Right. Um, so, uh, but yeah, we're going to talk about that. Don't sell yourself short. You have 10 years of experience podcasting. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. But we're going to, I think it was really fun. We talked about the um, yeah. sort of updates on the LA City Council. Um, so definitely stay tuned for that. Stay tuned for that. And also be like, I think one thing that if you don't live in LA, you will find interesting about this process is just like the way he talks about how they're imagining new ways to create representative government in LA. You know, we had a specific scandal that highlighted how ridiculous everything is here, but you probably also have ridiculous problems in your own city government. And I think, you know, thinking about some of the ways other cities are tackling these problems is probably useful as you think about like how your own city could be better representing its residents a hundred percent there's there's no reason why that interview shouldn't be an interest interesting to everyone um but what's interesting to us primarily at the moment is some some new polling numbers (laughs) you might be shocked to hear we're we're interested in some polling numbers (laughs) yeah we're interested in them for various reasons some of which have consumed my every waking 
like you guys, minute of life. Uh, Brent has been over. texting me all week about some polling drama that I have not been following in the slightest, but I have been getting incensed texts from him daily following a story that I hope to have him explain to me on this podcast right Oh, now. I'm going to explain it to you. Don't you worry your little head about it. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot wait. But let's present the polls yes. as is, as if they are fact, because I would contend that they are, as much as any <laughs> polling has ever been. Right. Um, because, I, I, you know, this polling got a lot of traction in part for reasons that we'll talk about later, but in part because it was really sort of like the first batch of polling where we have seen Biden pulled against really all of the other main GOP contenders. We've certainly seen, you know, uh, endless amounts of polls between, you know, Biden and Trump uh, a rematch. We've seen polls of Biden versus DeSantis, but we've never really got them against Haley, Pence, Christie, Ramaswamy, and the whole lot of all of them. And Prince doesn't look great. You better Um, hope that Vivek Ramaswamy is nominated as the candidate for the GOP. Because he quite literally is the only one that Biden is beating in these polls. Now there's some ties. Almost all of them are probably, except for one of them, which is fascinating. All of them are really within the margin of error. But like, they're just like, not what you would be looking for, right? So let's point out, by the way, before we even go into the numbers, that all of these numbers are numbers that in part exists because of a lack of enthusiasm for Biden himself. There are many Democrats out there who could beat these numbers. Like what we're about to hear is that America is undecided about whether they want Ron DeSantis, a full ridiculous person or Joe Mm. Biden, whose main attribute is just that he's old to be the president. Like I, a world in which some of these people are competitive against Biden is a world in which Biden needs to rethink his legacy or his plans just in general. But anyway, yeah. sorry, continue. No, no, no. That's that's important context. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, we've got Trump at 47, Biden at 46. That falls we've seen in that line poll before. With, we've seen that poll before, 100%. Yep. Trump up one, two, sometimes. Americans maybe, undecided now. about which elderly person they want to be the president. Do right. they want a felon or do they want just a bumbling old person? Right. Both of, both of these people have been president. That's right. <laughs> <We> should, <laughs> you may not be surprised to learn right. here. Uh, One of them we, had a particularly rough run for the rest of us. And we seem to not remember that time very well. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about that on this podcast before. Imagine, you know, being a general person in society and like, look, I understand tribalism, you know, <laughs> which sure, we have a lot sure. of going on, but like, it's still sort of bizarre to come up with that number. So Biden and DeSantis are tied at 47%. Outrageous. This bothers me more than the Trump one, because here's the thing. Donald Trump is charismatic. Is he insane and also kind of a dumb person? Sure, sure. I, I'm i not here to argue that he's not ridiculous. I am here to argue that Ron DeSantis is all of the bad ideas of Donald Trump minus any of the good things that make him a popular candidate. Right. Like he is not an interesting character to follow on television. He is not charismatic. He has no media savvy. He laughs like a weird person. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't know how to interact with human beings. Right. And he routinely looks like he's definitely doing cocaine for sure to be fair trump has had that vibe before in the past but it's true. desantis has all of the negatives of trump and none of the positives yeah, and i mean I positives to voters i don't even mean i mean not trump doesn't have any positives to me other than no, the right, glory of, of the trump stakes press conference but like <laughs> you know i this is this is embarrassing it's embarrassing. Is my point yeah. um so then we move on to the one person that he's beating that we mentioned already biden yeah. 46 ramaswamy 45 so he's beating ramaswamy by one point yeah your annoying younger brother is 
only losing to Joe Biden by one point. Right. Lifetime public servant Joe Biden. Nobody even knows who that guy is, by the way. No, no, of course not. No, they do now because they know they don't like him. They know he's annoying. (laughs) Right. If you have even seen his name, you are already aware that he's annoying because he has immediately via Eminem rapping made clear what his vibe is. Yeah. It's a silly vibe. (laughs) Um, And Mm -hmm. here's, I think, the most... Well, all of these next ones are sort of interesting to me, I think. But the the real outlier of all of these, which is the only one that is not within the margin of error, is Nikki Haley, 49, Joe Biden, 43. And what's wild is they're never going to make her the candidate. I know. That's the thing. And the reason that- She's the only one who has a clear shot here. That's exactly right. Because the, 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 the thing that is bumping her up is that there are probably some reasonable, I'm using air quotes here, independents who are like, she seems like a normal lady. And that, yeah. friends, is how you lose a Republican primary, by being a normal lady. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And listen, they're not even right. She's not a normal lady. <laughs> no, she's not. They're not even right. <laughs> but, no. but I can understand you know, why you see her on a stage with the other people that we have mentioned Yeah, and so you're far, like, that oh, you finally like, an adult in the room. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, you know, that sort of tracks with, you know, there have been, and I think we've even talked about them before, but reports that that she is the person that the the white house is the most concerned about like i think we've we've heard those rumors before and this sort of would you know would back that up so i don't know if they've done their own internal polling on that that saw them that saw something similar or or what but um yeah uh she's never gonna get the nomination but it's i'm sure fun for her that she's winning at this poll (laughs) yeah she probably feels smug it's probably fun Um, to be smug and then i think the thing and i think i texted you and grant this this week I think this actually more than any of the other things, like this is disqualifying at this point. Yes. Like I, I think that like you wake up and you see this poll and you say, well, I just can't go That's on fine. with not only yeah. my administration any longer, but just like with life. It's like just time okay. to, it's time to, to end it all. Mike Pence, 46, Joe Biden, 44. He's literally losing to a wax figure of an evil person. <laughs> I that's bleak this is a man who almost didn't qualify as the former vice president as a fellow former vice president almost didn't qualify for the first republican debate because he can't find any fucking donors that's right he couldn't he's the man with the most name recognition in this race besides trump himself probably because he's been the vice president of the united states although historically people do not know who the vice president is (laughs) that's fair (laughs) but i mean like him and Biden are just two vice presidents just battling it out. That's right. And you cannot yeah. listen. Joe Biden is a mediocre president. You won't get an argument from me on that. But you cannot tell me that he was not a, an at least six points better vice president than Pence. 100%. He crushed that vice president. He crushed being the vice president. So if you look at these two and you're just like, oh, two former vice presidents, I get that Biden's a boring president, yeah. whatever. But like, but Mike Pence you didn't even be- have cool sunglasses. No, he didn't have cool anything. He's never looked cool a day in his life. He once had a fly sit in his hair for an entire debate. Like that's who we're dealing with here. He doesn't know how to use his arms. And he also doesn't know how to use the fact that he literally saved American democracy and can't fucking campaign on it. Yeah, I know. It's deeply upsetting. Nothing angers me more than that kind of a missed opportunity, even on the right. As you know, as I've repeatedly gone gone on about Mike Huckabee on this podcast, nothing bothers me more than Republican men failing to even live you know uh work with the the facts that have been handed to them this is this is what handed right to him yeah 
Call yourself the man who saved American democracy. Use your head. Mm-hmm. Yep. And he can't. And yet he's beating Joe Biden by two points in this mm-hmm. poll. That also, is horrifying. Yeah. I know. Also beating Joe Biden by two points in this poll is Tim Scott. Who no one even knows is running. I was going to say, I quite literally, when I was reading the poll numbers, he was just listed as Scott. And I was like, is it Rick Scott? Right, which one? Is it a Rick? mystery right. Scott person? <laughs> I, I mean, I literally was like, and then I was like, oh, it's Tim Scott. God, he was so unmemorable to me at that debate that I was retelling the story of the debate to somebody and trying to describe where they all were and got tripped up because I forgot he had been there. Oh, you couldn't get the layout right because you I couldn't get the layout right because I lost track of Tim Scott. Yeah. And you know what? That's quite a feat considering he's the only black candidate in the race. I know. It's It's like forgetting that Nikki Haley is there, which is another thing I've done as the only woman in the race. Like sometimes like I should at least remember he's running. Right. He's literally a U.S. senator, and he is running for president. Like, it's that's how much he is a non-presence in the non-Iowa airwaves version of this campaign. That's right. Um, and lastly, Chris Christie forty-four, Joe Biden forty-two. It's interesting that all of those numbers are lower. It's I was like, going to say it's like no one wanted to vote for either of them. I was going to say they were like, no, hard pass. Thank you. Next. Yeah. That's everybody. Everybody all of a sudden immediately became undecided. That's right. <laughs> when faced with just like, two are options. these my choices? <laughs> More people were decided between Donald Trump and Joe Biden than Chris Christie <laughs> and Joe Biden. I know. And somehow in that election, both like Biden lost support. There's like five percent of this poll that having him against Chris Christie, they didn't go to Christie because Christie also has far fewer votes or far fewer yeah. uh, percentage points in this than Trump does in the Trump biden uh matchup but somehow everyone just got less interested i know it's wild it's wild it's oh boy this isn't the only depressing part of this poll no there's a lot of other things it was like a record low number of people who say that they have confidence in joe biden nearly 60 percent of people think his policies have made things worse 67 percent of democrats wish they had an alternative and again like uh, these are cracking with other polls that we have talked about here which made it interesting that everybody went off the rails and went full brain worms stupid this week when these polls came out. And that is, I assume, what you've been texting me about all week? (laughs) Yes. And like, look, you know, I get it. Like, there's a conversation to be had about doing polls against every candidate 14 months before there's going to be an actual election. So like, Maybe these like aren't great indicators of actual results, but I think like polling, as we just discussed, like, you know, these aren't outliers. What you can take from these pollings is that like, you know, taken collectively, they're good indicators of what, you know, people think at any given moment. They're good indicators of movement that's happening. Right. Um, And it seems like the movement is going generally in the wrong direction for Joe Biden. Yeah. The thing that That's, I have been- I feel like that, well, no, we often talk about polls at this stage as being unreliable, which they are. Um, yeah. And so I feel like that's, we know that we have said that. Yeah. We also know that part of the reason they're unreliable at this stage is because campaigns haven't really kicked off into gear and people aren't really sure who the candidates are going to kind of frame themselves as, what the main issues of the campaign are going to be. What we do yeah. know is that we currently have Joe Biden as president. So the one person that people are unlikely to learn much more about in these matchups is Joe Biden. So like, yeah, there's a world in which some of these candidates, we find out more about them. I think, you know, Ramaswamy, I'm thinking about this in particular, like the more we learn about him, the more annoying he is. Like his polling numbers will tank the more that we know about him. 
Right. I We've agree. seen this in the past with Scott Walker. We've seen this in the past with, you know, Ben Carson. We, you know, like the, the front runner candidate will come up and then die down because we find out that they're ridiculous. We've already seen this with Ron DeSantis. His campaign was in shambles just weeks ago because everyone found out more about him. But right. the one person who we're not going to find out more about is Joe Biden. So there is, I think, a real reason to have concerns if at this early stage, people lack confidence in him and also wish they had an alternative. Yes. I mean... I think one of the other funny things that was in this poll was that like everybody said that they wanted um, an alternative, but I think like it's something like 85% of 85% uh, of the people who said that couldn't name one, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> which wild. is wild since like, like 400 people ran, but I was going to say, I know it was wild. I could be well, naming maybe we people decided we didn't like any of those people too, which Listen, is a completely reasonable response to that's that. That's reasonable. <laughs> I have other people in mind beyond those people. I, well, I, so do I. I have yeah. nothing but a bench in my yeah. head. Um, um, but anyway, yeah. so, okay. So right. people were complaining about this poll. What yeah, 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 yeah. was the conspiracy theory? Yeah, so let me tell you what the conspiracy was because it's just, it's donkey brains is what it is. <laughs> like people, it, it, I can't, it's almost too stupid to fathom what happened this week to people's brains. Um, like they were taken over by aliens or something so i sent this poll like pretty immediately the morning that it came out to a friend of mine who i know is certainly more moderate than me just because i wanted to sort of like get his take on it and he was like oh i'm already on a text chain with this where like all of my friends are like well i guess we just sort of like can never watch cnn again in this lifetime and i was like sounds like some real fox news energy and i was like they're mad at cnn and initially i sort of like didn't understand it and then as a person who is unemployed right now <laughs> <laughs> I went to Twitter and I had some time. And so I realized that people were latching on to a specific part of how CNN did their polling. And it was tweeted all over the place, like that, uh, you know, Mueller, she wrote, uh, tweeted oh, yeah. it. Like people who are like, actually, like, otherwise you would sort of think like at least half thinking people got big mad. Because in the poll, at the bottom of it, it says the CNN, I'm going to read it to you. It says the CN, yeah. CNN poll was conducted by SSRS from August 25th to 31 among a random national sample of 1,500 adults drawn from a probability-based panel, including 1,259 registered voters and 391 Democratic and Democratic-leaning voters. The survey included an oversample to reach a total of 898 Republicans and Republican-leaning independents. So people got big hopping mad because they thought that there were almost 900 Republicans sampled and only 400 Democrats. Sampled. Right. And so they were literally like thinking that CNN had somehow screwed up this poll because they oversampled Republicans. And so they were like big mad at CNN, CNN calling it a fake poll. You've heard that before, probably, right? Uh, people people talking about fake polls, uh, you know? Uh, so, and then like, and then also there was like a whole thread of people being like, oh, well, actually, if there were that many Republicans included in this poll, then this is actually really good news for Joe Biden, because if he's at 40, oh, no, if he's, they thought if they he, were reweighting the poll, if, if he's at 47 percent, then that means at least 13 percent of the Republicans, since they were 60 percent of the electorate that was polled, had to have been voting for Joe Biden. And all of these people were sort of like giving blue wave emojis and various things. I saw multiple TikToks about it. People like really raging at 
the poet here. Let me tell you right now like, that I have not seen a single TikTok about this. You're on well, like special Democratic TikTok now. I'll send you some. Like I'm I actually... on socialist TikTok, I think. No one was paying attention to this on socialist TikTok. You in your unemployment seem to have gotten yourself into Democratic TikTok. Well, maybe I did because I actually interacted with one person for the first time literally ever on TikTok. Because <laughs> That's somebody... my favorite part of this story and I was hoping you would bring it up. Oh, I'll send you this TikTok because it's crazy making because it's somebody who's like literally pretending to be a mathematician. Well, actually, first, before I tell you about that TikTok, yes. let's- Here's what's you wrong may, with that. I was going to say, you may still be confused why that's not an issue because taken yeah. with only that language, you're like, well, that does sound wrong. Why do they include so many Republicans, not as many Democrats? Well, actually, CNN goes on in the very graph that- explains exactly what happened, which is insane that people just literally didn't read the rest of the exact same sentence and paragraph from the CNN's own website about the poll. So the, I'm going to pick back up where I left off. The survey yeah. included an oversample to reach a total of 898 Republicans and Republican-leaning independents. This group has been weighted to its proper size within the population. Because what they did was since one of the polls that we didn't talk about here on this podcast was a poll that they did of the entire Republican primary. And as we've talked about on this podcast, you have to have a large sampling when there are that many candidates to sort of like get an accurate representation of the polling numbers. This is why when we were talking about the polling to get into the Republican debates, one of the one of the criteria for those polls put forward by the the GOP was that there had to be 800 people polled. Democrats did the same thing in 2020. They had some like, you know, specifics uh, of, you know, sort of like criteria that polls had to meet, and, and polling size is always one of them. So what they did was they got a hold of 900 Republicans to ask them about the GOP primary. And then anytime they were polling anything about Biden or anything with the general election, they obviously re-weighted that to reflect whatever they think the population of voters is going to be. So if they think in right. the, the, you know, November of 2024 that the electorate is going to look like, you know, 48% Republicans and 47% Democrats and 3% independents or whatever. I just gave too many numbers. But like, then you you reweight that. So you only basically take, you know, 400 of the 898 Republican responses. And this is easily done in polling. This is how polling right. fucking works. You weight things to like whatever population you're going to have, and like right. that is literally just how polls work. But this got so cr- I'm I shocked that this missed you because it actually got <laughs> so bad. Like and literally like people that like some of those annoying like you know uh, uh, like young people that the White House is paying to put out content on Twitter. Like some of these people were being like, you know, Joe Biden's getting 13 percent of Republican voters oh. in new CNN poll. Right, exactly. Washington Post had to put out a full article about how polls work and why polls that have more respondents from one party aren't necessarily wrong. When I was pulling notes for this podcast this morning, Huffington Post, I sent you a screenshot of it in my yeah. der- derangement about it. Like <laughs> their their homepage was like five takeaways from the CNN poll. And the takeaway number one, I'm gonna read it to you specifically. Takeaway number one is they're not a conspiracy. Let's get this out of the way. Biden's weak poll numbers aren't some evil plot by ratings obsessed CNN or the Rupert Murdoch on Wall Love Street it. Journal to make it falsely appear as if Biden is tanking. This is my favorite part coming up right here. Various liberal and Democratic social media influencers have, have implied over the past week that these polls are invalid, but ended up exposing their own ignorance rather than media rock doing. <laughs> like it literally like took over 
democratic social media and the internet so bad that multiple media outlets had to be like, Democrats, here's how Calm numbers work. down. Right. Let me explain math to you. This is so embarrassing. It was I... truly embarrassing. And like, I was going bonkers about it because I sort of like, like I said, I couldn't get away from it. And also I dove head first into it. So it was of my own making. Yeah, you couldn't um... get away from it because he spent <laughs> all week getting into arguments with people on the internet about it. <laughs> Well, but that person it was just the, finding the, me. The TikTok that I ultimately responded to was some guy, he was like um like pretending to be like a mathematician, like at a freaking whiteboard. <laughs> and then I said to him, I, I like my made my first ever comment on TikTok. I was like, I think you're missing that they re-weighted those respondents. And then he yeah. didn't understand what I was saying. And oh, then no. he claimed to and I was like, I think you should learn how polls work. And he was like, I work for a polling company which like you don't. No. And I, then I literally not. sent him a, after like a back and forth of probably like four or five messages, I sent him the link to the Washington Post article like that explained right. the thing and then never got another response. Well, of course but, not. <laughs> but it was just so insane. Like I implore you, like, look, pulling is hard. Math is hard. I'm the first one to tell you that math is hard. If you Nobody are, likes if, math. if we're living in a world where I'm explaining math to you on the internet, you have lost the plot. Yeah, no, that's that's embarrassing for everyone involved. It's not- Quite literally, yeah. It's not a great situation to have put yourself in. And also, you know, I kind of mentioned this already, but like, I think part of the reason why, like it was like taking up so much of my brain space this week, because it, it felt like, it, it felt like I learned something from it because like, listen, you know, I sort of like get going sometimes about things and certainly like I will rage against, you know, I, I feel like <laughs> for lack of a, a better word, Lou Maga, we talked about it. On, <laughs> like, I, I talked about it on this podcast. Like, I was wondering where you were going with this. I was like an, the that's machine. An, that's, an, that's, an, that's an overstatement, obviously, but yeah. like I, yeah. quite literally, I was just sort of like, we fell into a trap this week. Yeah. Democrats, that is, of literally raging against fake polls and the mainstream media on the internet we that's not we that's not what we should be doing well and more importantly this is the kind of bullshit that actually is what the republican outrage cycle is trying to stoke like 100%. they are not trying to make you communists they are also not trying to discredit your beloved moderate mediocre candidates they are trying to make you become conspiracy theorists and a conspiracy is not wanting a policy that is farther left than what the Democrats are offering. A conspiracy is suddenly believing that you can't watch CNN anymore because you don't understand how polls work. And you've decided instead of finding out after you've been quoting CNN polls for decades um, that you, you know, that you're going to start some kind of outrage cycle on the Internet. I mean, this this is magazine. No, I think it's. It is. I think it's actually dangerous. And I know we're being yes. like, I'm being, you know, we're being funny about it. But like, it's like, I do think that like, the idea that like, now we're just sort of like, not able to trust CNN, because like, we've given up on learning math. I, I, like, that's, that's not, that's not it. That's not the T. No. And I also think, I mean, there's a distinction between, listen, there are reasons we don't trust CNN reporting because oh. they are a corporation that's owned I mean, by corporate interests. Hello, that's I'm not separate here to stick from up CNN. CNN. No, of course yeah. not. That's separate from CNN polling, first of all. 
I mean, that's all of the major news networks conduct their own polling. And we know that both CNN and MSNBC of the big cable networks, and oftentimes Fox News even, have uh, reliable polling numbers because they have independent polling. They're not being, they're, their newsrooms aren't the ones conducting the polling. They have polling right. professionals. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So but, I don't know. And then also just even yeah. the idea that CNN would just sort of like throw their credibility down the toilet by including 900 Republicans and 400 Democrats in a poll yeah. about the general election. I mean, like, I feel like there were just like so many like base level things that like should have been red flags to people as to like the things that they were saying online being wrong. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> like we need to be thinking people. Yeah. Here. We need to be thinking people. Like, um, And also with that in mind, we need to be thinking people when we think about what this means uh, about democratic anxiety and third party panic. Because oh listen, the, obviously, as soon as we found out in polling numbers that everyone doesn't want Joe Biden to run, Democrats panicked and decided to be mad at Cornell West, which is like, <laughs> get a better hobby that's not relevant to this at all that has actually been my favorite response to this this week because there's like one specific tweet that literally just like gives me so much joy and it's like abject stupidity it's from um uh rob reiner this week and he, he tweeted he said hard reality for our democracy to survive two things have to happen donald trump needs to be convicted for january 6th and there could be no third party candidate for democracy to survive, we cannot allow democratic voting. I know. There cannot be, there can be no democratic choices. <laughs> right. I was gonna say, I mean, like it's just so crazy. It's like, yeah, for us to save democracy, we have to jail the person who's probably going to be heading up, you know, the other party on the ballot. And like, look, and I listen, think that we should do that. Like I'm not, I'm not I was gonna say, I'm not here to say that we shouldn't do that, but like just the way that it's worded and then also like no third party candidates. I mean, what he's suggesting literally is like the monarchy of Joe Biden, but he's like suggesting it in a, a way to to save our democracy. I mean, that is, it's sort of perfect. It perfectly encapsulates. It really is. The, it's like one sentence where it's just sort of like, you really get it. <laughs> yeah, it's fully gotten. Um, <laughs> and then we also have polling numbers for the California Senate race, which is the, the first polling numbers I've seen with everyone involved. Same. Um, frustratingly, we have Schiff at 20, Porter's at 17. So it's close, you know, I think within the margin of error for Schiff and Porter. Yeah. And then our our fearless uh, GOP candidate, James Bradley, mm -hmm. at 10%. Uh, Barbara Lee at seven. I think she's going to have to drop out. I think Porter is going to have to be the standard bearer for the Democrat, or the progressive Democrats. And then um, Eric Early at seven. Yeah, 34% undecided. Yeah. Um, and then they also re-pulled the race with the inclusion of Steve Garvey, who you may have heard of because he's a former uh, Major League Baseball MVP, and he played for both the Dodgers and the Padres. So he's certainly a well-known character here. He's a Republican, and he has sort of hinted at running. And interestingly, it didn't really change much. The Democratic number, all of the Democratic numbers were like, fully unchanged and then just like a little bit of movement with the GOP candidates where it had Garvey himself at seven percent Bradley moved from 10 to seven percent and early went from seven to five percent and undecided only went down 32 percent so like it and this seems... is actually a decent poll for progressive Democrats because if you oh. take Lee and Porter's numbers together they're handily beating Adam Schiff I think so too and I think that there's a very real world that if this is an actual reflection 
then I think that you, and it's happened before, so it wouldn't be a surprise if it happened, but like, I think that Schiff and Porter could, could end up in the general together. And yeah. and then I think that you sort of like do have to um, probably think can. that like Porter, I, I think obviously probably gets like most or all of Barbara Lee's votes. Obviously there's yeah. still a lot of people undecided, but like, I also think you sort of have to take into account and like, is this fair for Adam Schiff? Probably not. Do I care? No, because I don't like him. But like, there is like <laughs> such hatred amongst yeah. the, the GOP for him that I have a feeling that like, if, Republicans were going to vote for anybody in that race and some of them probably just wouldn't if it was two Democrats but I think yeah. there's a large a, a large chunk of Republicans who would really think that they were like getting one over on Adam Schiff by voting for Katie Pork. I also think she might do a better job of campaigning to Republicans I know that sounds crazy because she's yeah, obviously I... far to his left but she represents a swing district she has yeah. historically shown that she can, especially the kinds of Republicans that we have in California which obviously yeah. are a little different than some of the Republicans that we see in like other regions but like she is somebody who really does have the power to speak to some Republican voters. And I think Schiff, probably because of his involvement with the impeachment stuff, doesn't. I think she speaks to corporate corruption better yeah. than anyone, which is, you know, always a thing that we've talked about on this podcast being something that we have felt like the, the left could probably like actually, you know, yeah. work with the, the right on. And I think she could maybe run with that to a degree. So I agree with you. I, I think... Um, obviously yeah. that's who I would vote for. Yeah. You know, so that's, I'm interested to see whether those numbers hold, whether uh, <clears throat> that 30, where that 34% ends up because yeah. um, it doesn't see, it does feel like Barbara Lee doesn't really have the kind of traction in this race that she needs to um, kind of be in the runoff at least. Yeah. And I've sort of, I, I don't even think she's really in the conversation as much as she would want to be. And I think that's probably owing partly to the fact that it's like everyone's so sick of old people. <laughs> I know. She's well, also oh, old. Yeah, she's <laughs> like, Oh, also, um, uh, in regard to that, we actually got like um, the, the most sort of forthright answer from Gavin Newsom about what he right. would do if he had to actually pick someone for that. And that's been sort of like a hot button issue. Um, specifically just because he has always said that he would, you know, appoint a black woman. And so I think, you know, we've talked on this podcast about sort of like Barbara Lee, like making some, you know, doing some things that made it seem like she was sort of like putting her name out there, obviously yeah. to run, but just to be the person who would be picked if that was the case. But he said quite specifically, I meet the press today, he said that he would pick a caretaker for the Senate seat because he doesn't want to get involved in the primary. So it would not- he should have done last time too. No, I agree. I mean- I, you should never just yeah, like pick the, can, the heir apparent right. yeah. as the governor, I don't think. I don't think that's your... Right, I, I think you always pick a caretaker. I mean, I know that's not the approach that he took, but I'm mad at him about it, so I know. he Same. can deal. Yeah. Um, other people I'm mad at, listen, Nancy Pelosi just declared she's running in 2024, and it's read the room, lady. Read the room. She's 83. This is not the time. It's too old. We are, we have nonstop hospitalizations because of old people tripping right now in government. Right. It's like or just our national security is, We've, or their brain yeah. isn't working or they're tripping and their brain isn't working. I mean, <laughs> I believe in DiFi's situation, we got both. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, and in Mitt Romney's, I mean, uh, in, not Mitt Romney, in Mitch McConnell's situation, <laughs> Mitch McConnell. we got both as well. We got both, yeah. He has, his brain isn't working and he tripped and he, that was yeah. why he was in the hospital for so long. Yeah. Like, I just can't, it's these, as I don't know if I raised this last week or not, but I've been talking about it a lot with my parents. These people are not even boomers. Oh, these yeah, people no, you did mention it, but were, say it these again. These people 
are older than boomers. Like we've been blaming boomers for all of our woes and sure they have more wealth than we do. And they kind of set up the whole system so that we would fail. I get that we're mad at them, but like the people that are holding us hostage right now in government, they're, and I want to remind you that Joe Biden is older than presidents that we had 20 years ago. He is older than Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton is a boomer. He is older than George Bush. George Bush is a boomer. We have already had boomer presidents starting back in the mid nineties. And now we have Joe Biden running at an age that he was already older than them then. Yeah. He's not a boomer, you guys. DiFi is not a, DiFi is definitely not a boomer. Uh, Nancy <laughs> Pelosi is not a boomer. No. Nancy Pelosi is, she was born during the great depression. Like get <laughs> away from us, go away. <laughs> it's time. Well, but Lila, the democracy hangs in the balance. I forgot about democracy hanging in the balance. It's so important to remember how democracy hangs in the balance. And the only thing that we can do to protect democracy is not ever let anyone new run for office. (laughs) The most important thing that we can do is keep all the same candidates we've had this whole time and basically box out anyone new who might be on the bench for any of these seats. Yeah. That way we can save democracy. Thank you for reminding me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, We also might have a shutdown, so that's fun. Oh my God. This This is embarrassing on so many levels. (laughs) I know. Um, and I think it might actually happen this time. One of two Why things not? is going to happen. We're, we're going to have a government shutdown or Kevin McCarthy is going to lose the speakership or potentially okay. both because yeah. the house is back in session. They get come back on Tuesday. They've been out for August and they only have 12 legislative days to pass some type of spending bill before the September 30th deadline. Or else Do you think that they all have like ADHD? Like they need these like crazy deadlines to get anything done. I feel like every Listen, time they relate. come back, it's like you have six minutes to avert nuclear disaster. And they're like, well, I guess we better vote 14 times and oust each other before we get anything done. Like they have to wait till the last second. That'd be how I would be operating. So, yeah, you know. No, I'm very deadline-driven. I, I, I get it. I was going to say, that's how you'd be operating, too, if I know you. <laughs> like, I think I do. Yeah. Um, anyway, McCarthy has indicated that he's interested in passing a continuing resolution, which would just keep the government funded at its current levels for a short period as they sort of, like, That way we can have more negotiate. than one crisis. We can first have the September thirtieth crisis. crisis, but then we can have, like, an October twelfth crisis. crisis. <laughs> we, you know, we can we can keep this, this party yeah. going. Yeah. But, obviously, the the Freedom Caucus, they're still big mad over the deal that McCarthy and Biden did to suspend the debt ceiling earlier um, because they sort of like set some spending levels and they didn't think that those spending levels were low enough because they wanted to make more cuts. So interestingly, what the Republicans have been doing, they have just been sort of passing bills, like, you know, spending bills here and there, and they've been passing them at lower levels than... um, what was actually said in the deal that McCarthy and Biden made awesome. at the Yes. So the Senate, before they went on recess, passed a bunch of spending bills and they passed them at the levels that they were supposed to pass them. And so now we're at this impasse where Republicans sort of like have to do something in the House, but there are a bunch of demands that the Freedom Caucus has made and they are cuckoo bananas. Yeah, this... I, this is going to just be such a headache for McCarthy because of course, one of the things that they insisted on when they finally let him be the speaker was that they could just be like, 
ousting speakers over oh, yeah, it only any, takes one any member can call a vote to oust the speaker. So yeah. there, we're going to have another like first week of January situation on our hands yeah. soon. Where they're going to have Matt to try Gates. to oust them a speaker. They're not going to know who to elect instead. They're right. never going to be able to get consensus on it. It's going to be a mess. Yeah. But here's the list of demands that the House Freedom Caucus put forward to be able to like vote on any spending bills. It has to contain all of their nutty um, border security points. Awesome. It has to address the quote un unprecedented weaponization of the Justice Department and FBI, which is obviously in regard cool. to the, the Trump charges. Cool. It has to it has to end the so-called woke policies at the Department of Defense, which uh, they're obviously referring to like the fact that there's um that they provide funding to service members and their families members who need to travel to access abortion care. Yeah. So they want it, they want to end that woke policy. Ruining America. <laughs> right. And then their newest demand, which is the nuttiest is that they want to launch an impeachment inquiry against President Biden. Meanwhile, they've already acknowledged they have no pretext under which to do this. They just no. want to impeach him for no reason. I know. I love the part of the story, which I believe was on Politico, uh, my favorite part, it said, but the possibility of an impeachment inquiry has failed to gain widespread favor among Senate Republicans, Senate Republicans, several of whom have acknowledged that Green and her allies, Marjorie Taylor Green and her allies, have presented no valid evidence of high crimes and misdemeanors on Biden's part. So they're just like, let's just do an impeachment, guys. Yeah. Why not? It worked Hop so in. well for everyone Which else. Impeachment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this is going to be a fun shutdown. And to McConnell's credit in the Senate, in one of the moments where, you know, he wasn't brain freezing, he was like, none of these things are going to be happening. <laughs> right. <laughs> like he said, he said, Speaker McCarthy, right. He said, Speaker McCarthy agreed to certain spending levels in the debt limit deal he reached with President Biden earlier this year. The House then turned around and passed spending levels that were below that level without saying an opinion about that. That's not going to be replicated in the Senate. <laughs> yeah so they That's, have 12 days to get all of this figured out before the government cool this is going to work out great and everyone <laughs> that they're dealing with is like on death's door so that's going to make it easier and you know the other people that they're dealing with aren't like anchored to reality so that's <laughs> going to be fun yeah <laughs> um and then in final news before we throw to our interview there's one story um that we wanted to raise partly in light of, so my mother has a new strategy where she's writing every day to Joe Biden just to tell him like, don't run, here's what you could be doing instead. Mm-hmm. And one of her arguments is just like, if you're not running, you have the opportunity to think really creatively about how to solve some of the problems without political blowback because you're not running again, you know, you're lame duck at that point. Um, so like, try some stuff. And in New Mexico, uh, Michelle Lujan Grisham tried some stuff this week. And so yeah. we wanted to let you know about it yeah but. it's sort of a random story but it was so genius and to your point and this is what we have been and and and, and outside of you know what your um, mom is doing with the, the letters to joe biden which are i love every moment of you know this is something even i think in response to this issue which is about gun yeah. violence i think that we have i mean we wrote an op-ed about like some you know crazy ideas that we had to to get this exactly. or to get this under control you know, it, it's just sort of like, and on so many other issues, we talked about it after, you know, the Dobbs decision and, and stuff. It's just sort of like, just like, try everything. Think, put your, put your thinking caps on. Yeah. Right. Think creatively. Like, let's do some try creative some thinking. Have a brainstorm. And if they get shut down, try a different thing. Right. Exactly. And she have a brainstorm. Did a, she, she had a big think about this and she knows yeah. it's probably going to get shut down. There's already in, there's already been a, a lawsuit filed that will probably go through and she'll probably get told that she can't do this. But, and she even knows that she acknowledged that that was the case, but she was like, we need to just start talking about this. Essentially what yeah. she did is on Friday, she issued a public health order that 
that suspends the open and permitted concealed carry of firearms in Albuquerque for 30 days in the midst of a spate of gun violence. So she's using her emergency powers as the governor under a public health order yeah. to make people not be able to carry guns around the city anymore. And what this does, like even if this gets shot down, it what we need to do is show that people do have powers to try stuff in the like I think we're so accustomed to seeing the news that some horrifying shooting has occurred and it's the most tragic thing we've ever heard in our lives and we all have to feel sad about it but we can't do anything we're just like paralyzed and I feel like what we need is people to start doing stuff just so that we can see that it's possible to try to do stuff so we can feel inspired to have our own brainstorm about what there is to do right. you know I think other governors need to see governors just trying something and and if it gets shot down then you know try something else. But like it, I think there are emergency powers that are provided to the governor that I think, you know, could at least be attempted in a case like this. There's probably other powers that the governor's office has that, you know, th that can extend to, you know, somehow suspending, you know, uh, concealed carry or some other sort of like gun violence totally. related, you know, or, or gun control related measure. But like, just the fact that she's trying something is really all we're trying to report on here. Like, why not just try something? Yeah. Are you mad about Dobbs? Try something. Are you yeah. mad about the lack of gun control and that fact that everyone's shooting everyone? Try something. Yep. You know, are you mad about the fact that we, you know, are taking away Medicaid from, you know, tons of people who need it? Try right. something. Like tons there's, of people. Yep. are you mad about climate control? Cool. Try something. Like just try something. <laughs> just, a lot of the time we're just like not trying anything. We're just sort of like, well, it'd be hard to try something. So obviously you understand <laughs> that we can't. And it's like, we should stop being understanding about that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, in any case, so, so that's a little tidbit. And now let us tell you all about the excitement at the LA City Council. Let's do it. If you are a listener of this podcast, you'll probably remember us talking about um, a situation that happened about a year ago, or at least the leak was about a year ago, where um, some LA City Council members were recorded um, speaking to each other and they made some very deeply racist comments. It became a huge news story, and it ultimately led to a resignation. Um, Nuri Martinez, who was our council president, resigned. Kevin DeLeon still has not resigned. He's still on the council. Um, and it that caused a huge uproar at the time when they first got back into session. And one of the great city council uh, public comment periods in, in Los oh, Angeles Oh, yes, history. that's right. That was an exciting, what, like, hours-long <laughs> comment yes. period of... Los Angeles residents just saying fuck you to the city council over yeah. and over. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so while of course it was specifically those racist comments that got all of the attention, what they were at, at the core of the conversation that they were having, they were really sort of like discussing how to solidify their political power in the redrawing of council districts, which was happening at the time known as redistricting. So at that point, after this leak, we sort of started looking at how our redistricting is done. And then there were some larger questions that came about the actual size of our own council representation, and then obviously some clearly needed ethics reforms. So now we're sort of one year after the leaks. And we are sort of at a point where we have some big updates on some of the things that have been being worked on. So we're really excited um, for our guest today. Um, 
we have Jeremy Payne. He's the senior policy analyst at Catalyst California, which is a nonprofit that's working on these very issues through the lens of building racial justice or uh, building racial justice by building power and transforming public systems. Um, and he's also my boyfriend. So that's sort of exciting. Um, so we had and, an in. Right. And friend of the podcast, obviously, you know, good friends with Lila. So um, welcome, Jeremy. Now you can tell me if I messed any of that up also, Jeremy. Uh, no, that was all fairly accurate. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> fairly um, accurate is what we strive for at Brain right. Trust Live. That's our brand here at Brain Trust Live. <laughs> yeah, I will name, uh, yeah, it was Council President at the time, Mary Martinez, uh, Councilmember Kevin DeLeon, uh, Councilmember Gil Cedillo, and uh, Ronnie Herrera. Uh, three of those four actually um, are no longer in office, either through resignations or uh, through their uh, just their elections, elections came up. Right. Losing elections happened. So. ran for re-election and lost. Lost. So yeah, uh, right. uh, being caught in a scandal will do that to you. And so, yeah, this is what has been going on. Um, this was revealed in October 2022, and it led to uh, many Los Angeles residents as well as organizers in the city of LA, uh, such as Cal's California, to kind of um, realize that our worst fears were very accurate and very true, and that there was a lot of insider politics um, that was not just kind of trying to keep their seats and uh, secure their futures, but doing so in a way that undermined a lot of the uh, solidarity that was being built in Los Angeles for generations among Black and Brown communities. Uh, this was a very, um, and through the lens of the uh, four individuals, uh, Latinos versus Black uh, in versus indigenous uh, conversation. And it really did undermine a lot of the progress that was made um, among the many organi organizers in the city of Los Angeles. And so there was a call to action as well as just a desire to kind of acknowledge the pain and hurt that many residents felt um, from this kind of scandal, as well as kind of just peeling back and digging deeper about what this actually means terms of how our elected officials are handling politics and uh, what is their relationship to the residents of Los Angeles. And so it was a, um, a blessing in disguise in terms of like the silver lining of it was that it really did bring together all the organizers and all the community residents that were working hard to build the solidarity, this multiracial, multigenerational solidarity uh, for years to come together even closer and plan a strategy for fixing our, uh, our halls of power. And the conversation or the sticking point of that was we need structural reform. We can't just kind of rely on elections to get the job done. Um, we need to rethink how our, uh, our decision-making processes are handled and remove some of that kind of uh, uh, behind closed doors tactics that were used in terms of redistricting um, and think about how we can have more transparent and more accessible council members. and. Uh, policymakers uh, work with our Los Angeles residents. And so um, what came from this was a, uh, a conversation among council members, among residents, as well as organizers about what sort of structural reforms will help us kind of uh, create a more united uh, Los Angeles for all, a more equitable Los Angeles for all. Um, and so that's where we're at right now. Can we talk a little bit about um, some of the specific problems that are contained within those uh, areas of structural reform that you're looking to address. One of the things that I think always really interests me is we all learned in the middle of the scandal that there's like very few members of the LA City Council and they represent 
huge numbers of people as compared to a lot of other cities. I'm sure, you know, there's others, there's other issues um, around ethics and also obviously around redistricting. Can you talk a little bit about the specifics of some of the problems that you're seeking to resolve via these structural reforms and kind of how they were identified and what they mean? Yeah, so in terms of kind of what's happening at the moment and to that kind of conversation about the size of our council districts, uh, the city council uh, developed a kind of ad hoc committee to start investigating some of these kind of problems and some of the remedies that could be used to create more transparency and accountability. Um, and of course, through the audio link, this was about the redistricting process. And so the conversation has gone from, maybe we should not be having uh, a appointed uh, redistricting commission where council members are able to appoint friends and allies of their own offices to the commission to draw the lines that would secure their future and help them win future elections to a more independent process where it is actual um, everyday residents who are uh, from the communities, who know their streets, who know their neighborhoods, and know their schools, who are drawing the actual boundaries of our districts. That was something that I found to be interesting uh, around all of this was that, you know, the, the council is, is very heavily involved in the drawing of their own maps, which I don't know that and a lot of people- And the maps look like that. <laughs> that's the thing that I think we learned out of all of this, or at least I did anyway, sort of, was how how heavily, how heavily they are involved in, you know, drawing their own districts, essentially. Yeah, and that's a common reality for a lot of uh, local jurisdictions. Of course, in the state of California, we have our independent redistricting commission that does our statewide offices as well as our federal offices. Uh, again, relying on uh, independent California, it's not independent in terms of party, but just non-elected officials uh, who are called upon and apply to serve for essentially uh, multiple years, because it could be a 10-year uh, term of service to be a commissioner in case there's anything that comes up in terms of legal challenges. But this is a essentially in a position where folks would be applying. And we have that model in California at our statewide level. And so most folks think that we have such a system at our local levels. And in Los Angeles County, we do have a county level independent redistricting uh, commission that handles our uh, board of supervisors. But when you get to the actual city of Los Angeles, uh, that is a very different process. So we do have elected officials who not are not pro, who aren't directly drawing their own maps, but again, who are appointing members to serve on a commission to draw those maps. And so there is a lack of uh, uh, ex parte communication, there's a lack of uh, distancing that would be helpful. So those incumbents are just protecting their own self-interest. Um, and I was just going to go back to saying that um, these districts are very important in terms of how they're drawn because one, elected officials are able to kind of use them to secure their futures, but also because in Los Angeles, we have the largest council districts to uh, um, uh, in the nation where our council members, our 15 council members on our city council currently, represent 265,000 residents each. Uh, again, that is the largest ratio between uh, residents to one council member in the nation. By, uh, that, by quite a margin, I believe, right? Isn't quite it? Quite a margin. Yeah. And so well, I've, comparable cities, I mean, I know I, I looked this up at the time that we uh, first learned about this, but I, in New York City's average council district size is 173,000 residents. In Chicago, it's like 55,000 people. The other major cities are like hundreds of thousands of people less per council district than mm -hmm. LA has. Yeah, and so this isn't a factor of us being such a large city because Los Angeles exceeds our population uh, by 
quite a few million. Um, and so this isn't just something that we have to live with or have to kind of settle with just by being in a large metropolitan. This is by design and we haven't changed the size of our city council since 1925 when our 15 council structure was first created uh, or first expanded to that number, I should say. And that was because they wanted to make sure that there was more representation for residents and that they wanted to be mindful of population growth in 1925. We haven't changed that in a hundred years. So when they changed that back in again 1925, they were trying to make sure that there was one council for every 38,000 residents. Now we're at one councilor for 265,000. <laughs> yeah. I know that the the other thing before we get into sort of like some of the recommendations that you and some of the other you know groups that have been working on this, um, I, I'm curious. I know one of the other things that obviously everybody has been looking at is you know doing some type of ethics reform as as well. Can you sort of obviously? I mean, the need for that is clear based on you know sort of what happened that led us to this point. But can you just sort of like you know talk about what that could look like and 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 how you're going about looking for solutions for that. Yeah, and I'll just kind of circle back to talking about the ad hoc committee that was created to kind of explore some of these potential solutions to the problems that we're experiencing uh, of corruption, of manipulation of maps, uh, kind of insider politics that are handling uh, uh, future decisions with redistricting. Um, and so this is a commission to explore a multitude of ideas. And one of those would be ethics reform and uh, adding some teeth to the ethics commission that we already have in the city of Los Angeles, which has a great model for enforcing, say, campaign finance and offering our uh, matching funds program to ensure that there's more kind of equitable access to running for office. But it may, they don't have as much kind of executive power when it comes to uh, investigating and removing council members for uh, scandals such as the audio list that we've heard back in October 2022. So there are opportunities to really strengthen our ethics commission and either have them as a lead or in terms of uh, setting up a charter review commission that would be able to meet periodically to review say things that haven't changed in our city constitution, which essentially is a charter in the last hundred years, or to be able to investigate um, and remove council members for uh, salacious things um, that are happening. And so that is kind of just one avenue and there's no kind of one reform that's a silver bullet to fix all of the issues in Los Angeles. And so this is the way to just generate as many ideas as possible. And that is what RLA is doing. And that is the Organized United Reform uh, Los Angeles Coalition that was uh, developed uh, among many like-minded uh, community-based organizations and advocacy leaders who uh, work or kind of uh, provide leadership in the Los Angeles region who work with predominantly uh, BIPOC, Black, indig uh, uh, Black, Indigenous, people of color or low-income residents uh, who are probably some of the most marginalized members when it came to redistricting and political representation. And so this was an opportunity for us to really kind of uh, unify all of our work together. So we didn't have to take this on individually, but we could take it on as a coalition and really maximize um, our kind of collective muscle in this, in this sphere. Uh, it also allowed us to really kind of think uh, collaboratively in terms of who we're reaching out to and who we're hearing from in terms of uh, resident engagement and feedback. We wanted to make sure that we were hearing from residents rather than assuming that we had their best interests at heart because sometimes nonprofits can kind of operate in that sphere. We wanted to make sure that we were actually hearing from folks, letting them know 
what was happening and getting their suggestions on the recommendations that we could be implementing in the city of Los Angeles uh, to, again, create that level of equity, transparency, and accountability. And so that is then getting to your question, which I know you finally asked earlier about kind of what our recommendations were around. And that was about establishing the independent redistricting commission, but making sure that our process kind of was a, um, a stronger system that fit the needs of Los Angeles. So building off some of the successful models and precedents we've seen in other jurisdictions um, and making it kind of a unique model for Los Angeles. And the other uh, recommendation was really centered around council expansion. And that is gonna sound a little confusing, but increasing the number of council districts. Um, so we have more representation and more opportunities for communities to elect candidates of choice that um, either look like them, understand their neighborhoods, or is able to effectively lead on the issues of that community. And so those are kind of like three dimensions of representation that are missing in Los Angeles, just given that our, our city council is just too small to represent uh, all nearly 4 million Angelinos. Can you talk a, a little bit specifically about um, some of those solutions? I know in terms of, you know, the independent redistricting, you've suggested some reforms about, you know, who who was eligible to be on that commission and, you know, removing some of the roadblocks for people to be able to, to be on that commission. Can we talk about that? And then we'll, we'll, we'll also talk about, you know, how many council seats you have, you know, suggested uh, in terms yeah. of the council size. So again, an independent redistricting commission kind of at face value is much better than kind of any other system in terms of elected official drawing their own districts. But of course, we wanted to kind of explore ways to make it even more equitable because um, a redistricting commission and being a commissioner can be a full-time job, especially in larger cities like Los Angeles, where folks have to spend uh, essentially eight hours a day going through maps, responding to uh, community feedback and hosting um, uh, in-person or online sessions because of the pandemic, we've had some of those. And so just understanding what sort of applicants does that uh, limit in terms of who's able to apply for a commission, um, you start to see more kind of white collar, uh, traditional um, uh, formal education individuals applying who have the uh, economic freedom to sacrifice a year of their, uh, a year of their life to solely be working on this. But when we're thinking about kind of Los Angeles diversity, we have a lot of residents who don't fit that kind of uh, traditional model of formal educated, uh, uh, well-off individuals. And so just thinking through some of those barriers in terms of how we can uh, make applying to a commissioner essentially sexier, as well as more attainable for a lot of folks. And so a lot of that just goes into how often are we having this commission meeting and how can we ensure that when we have these meetings that they are at times where someone who may have a day job is able to do their work and also be able to do this as a part-time role. We're also trying to think about a lot of, in the city of Los Angeles, our commissioners weren't compensated for the year of service that they did. And so again, thinking about how can these commissioners be compensated for the work that they're doing because it essentially is a full-time job. And then thinking of some more alternative ways such as, is there an opportunity for the city to provide childcare for uh, single parents who are raising children who can't be able to leave the home to serve on this commission and be in a four to six hour uh, commission meeting uh, that meets weekly. And so there are some of those just existing barriers, but there's also some things that we just have traditionally had in our redistricting commission that just don't have to be there and they seem a little archaic. 
Uh, one of those is the fact that we, in some of our independent redistricting commissions, require that individuals be registered voters. But of course, districts by themselves don't only apply to voters. We all live in districts regardless if we're a voter or not. And so why should we be uh, limiting who can be on a commission and understand their neighborhood and vouch for their neighborhood um, if, if they're not a voter? Um, and also our city council is nonpartisan in itself. So it really makes no sense why we should be having uh, a voter requirement as well as a, a party kind of uh, 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 balance where you have say X amount of Democrats, X amount of Republicans or X amount of independents which we see in some of our statewide commissions. Right. And so again, just kind of moving away from that and also thinking about um, do we actually, again, need to be thinking about districts as only a voter centered kind of responsibility. Thinking about our undocumented community who makes up a large population of Los Angeles, they too are again affected by this uh, result of our kind of redistricting process and they live in our districts and they are neighbors and so they should also be able to voice and have their experience and their history as residents reflected in the uh, redistricting commission of Los Angeles. So, so those are some of the barriers that we have explored and offered recommendations uh, to again kind of uh, create the best independent redistricting commission that fits the uh, needs of Los Angeles. That's amazing. Can you, can you also now, can we, can you let us know sort of what you've suggested um, in terms of increasing the council size and then also sort of like how you came up with the numbers that you, you did on that front? Yes, and before I kind of dive into that, I don't want to shortchange the RLA's work on the independent redistricting side and say that we were focused on who is applying to the commission, but also what is the right process to ensure that people who do not want to be commissioners also have access and understanding uh, and there's education about the redistricting process so they can be further engaged. We didn't see a lot of that in the last redistricting cycle. And so everything from ensuring that there's a protected budget for the redistricting commission to do community-based outreach and partner with uh, local nonprofits to do that popular education to hosting extent meetings and in the evening so there's more access. Those are all part of the full recommendations that can be found on the rla.org website. So I'll stop there with IRC and then I'll, I'll go over to cancel expansion. No, I think that's a really important point because like I might not want to be on the independent redistricting commission, but I also might want to know what's going on with the independent redistricting commission. <laughs> well, and this is something we talked about, I think last week on the podcast about the, the fact that, you know, if democracy puts huge burdens of on people's time, then it's not really democratic. So like part of ensuring that you have a truly democratic system is making sure that people who don't have the time to be, you know, part of the governing piece of democracy have the time to participate in the ways in which they can and also have the information that they need to understand their role in that process. Yeah, and it's all about just maximizing kind of uh, community voice and power building within our neighborhoods. And again, all of that is to really kind of um, empower residents so they feel that they're kind of voice matters outside of simply elections. So kind of thinking of democracy beyond the electoral space. And that is where a lot of people kind of, they hit that bear and they think that once you cast your vote, that's all the kind of opportunities you have to change the halls of power. But again, having a more inclusive redistricting commission process to an independent redistricting commission really does open up the doors and folks do have a lot to say. And we hosted a number of in-person convenings where folks could tell us what's on their minds and they didn't hold back. And we loved that because that was just helping us generate ideas and really refine our recommendations because everything that we developed 
was informed by what we were hearing from residents. Because again, as I mentioned, we started with residents before we drafted any recommendations. We need to hear from them. And those voices are seen and quoted in a recommendation. So um, again, yeah, it's really just about centering this uh, work through the residents' voice and uh, needs. Okay, tell us the council district numbers. All right, so with council expansion, uh, again, right now, currently, we have 15 council members representing 265,000 residents each. Uh, and of course, there is just the numbers aspect of that, where ideally, of course, we would like to have uh, a neighborhood or a council district where we don't have to compete with 265,000 other residents to get our voices heard. And so there is an issue of kind of what that level of access means to an individual. There's also the issues of delivery of services. There's also the issues of uh, dealing with corruption and being able to recall your council member. If you have a very large district, collecting 15% of your district's uh, uh, signatures for a petition to recall it can be very difficult. So again, just thinking through about kind of the mechanisms that made it difficult there. But we're also thinking about kind of how has Los Angeles 15 council district model either helped or hindered uh, or marginalized specific communities of interest. Again, we work with, in terms of our coalition, with BIPOC and low-income residents, and we know and very clearly that many members, especially among our Black, uh, Latino, as well as our uh, Asian populations, Los Angeles, don't really have the council district representation that reflects their actual population or reflects kind of the uh, history of uh, racism and anti-Black prejudice that has really um, uh, silenced the voices of many. Um, and so there's a lot to consider when we did our council recommendation, not just again, thinking about the number of what that means in terms of uh, services or things like that, but also thinking about what is the need to have uh, representation that again, either looks like you understand your community or is able to kind of really reflect the needs and perspectives that your community experiences. And that doesn't have to be just solely kind of race or ethnicity, just thinking again about who, what are all the identities that we have and how, how is that being reflected in Los Angeles? I think maybe also some important context for non-Los Angeles residents on this topic is that because Los Angeles is split up into a lot of weird municipalities that are fully encompassed by LA, like it's very easy for a council district to include like communities that are nowhere near each other and are separated by other cities. So like, you know, when you think about how the council districts in a lot of the cities that you may be familiar with are set up, you're imagining like a dense map of communities and maybe they're gerrymandered and maybe you see some squiggly lines or whatever, but they're all kind of contained within one general area. And LA has the additional kind of chaos of having cities inside of it that are not part of the city of LA, that are not part of these city council districts. So if you're imagining a map that already has 260,000 people, you know, encompassed in it, you're also looking at huge geographical areas a lot of the time, many of which are not anywhere near each other. Anyway, I just thought that would be important context for people who aren't from the yes. area and don't understand how ridiculous LA's map is in the first place. <laughs> Yes, and so that goes into the kind of the uh, need for representation because there's a lot of communities who have a very different interests that are smacked with one another. And of course, typically in those situations, the one that has the community that has the most money um, and traditionally, um, those are the ones that have the most voice with that said representative. And so the communities that come from lower incomes or who are um, experiencing other kind of uh, disparities 
they're not getting the representation, even though they're a part of that district that those other folks are. And so there was a need to really think about how we can kind of create more council districts that wouldn't kind of, uh, uh, wouldn't segregate communities in a way that we're creating districts to have, say have all of our black Angelinos forced into one district and all of our Latinos pushed into one district, but to think a little bit more holistically about, well, we live in a very diverse city where there's black and brown community residents living right next door to one another who share cultures and who share uh, experiences going to the supermarket, going to church. And so just thinking about what does that mean in terms of our districts? Well, there's not really a majority population that can say win uh, an election or uh, sway uh, outcomes solely based on votes, but we live in more of a plurality-based kind of community where we have to rely on our residents and build commonality with one another to really elect candidate choice. And when you have that level of kind of coalition versus tribalism, there's a lot of opportunities to really help out the most uh, marginalized individuals. So when we approached our recommendation model, I feel like I was kind of teasing this for a long time. <laughs> we decided to kind of really create a range of uh, council sizes that we see to have the maximum maximum benefit for specific communities that we work with. And that range was to increase from our 15 council size to uh, 23 to 31 single member council districts. And we set the floor of that 23 of our range, which was 23, because we wanted to ensure that when we approach council expansion, that it wasn't just transactional, that city council just voted to have 17 council members and they were able to keep essentially the same districts, just slightly smaller. No, we wanted to make sure that we were creating districts that were gonna be uh, focused on the individual experience. And so we saw 23 as our core because at that size, we're able to do some kind of modeling, essentially redistricting of our own to show that we can create some of these plurality council districts where Black Angelinos and Asian Angelinos each acquire a plurality council district where they might not be the majority population, but they have enough kind of concentration with one another where they can actually influence the outcomes of election. Of course, that all is dependent on the candidates that run for office and things of that nature, but there is that influence district model that's used a lot in the redistricting spaces to talk about kind of what is the collective power of that neighborhood. And we were able to say, say that we could truthfully be able to secure some really good representation for Black and Asian Angelinos who are really seeing kind of dismal numbers of representation or may face threats of having uh, dismal numbers of representation. For our Asian, um, uh, our Asian Angelinos, uh, we have historically had very few uh, Asian council members on our city council. Um, and when they are elected, they're often uh, from the same community and they have to kind of vie uh, for a seat that's usually torn up through redistricting, such as the Koreatown neighborhood that has been uh, deeply divided, which has a very large Asian population, also a very large uh, Latino population. It's a very diverse community, but it has a large concentration of uh, Asian uh, residents. That really just goes to show kind of the impact of redistricting on legislative descriptive representation, as well as effective representation for Asian uh, communities and API communities. And so we set, again, set that model at 23 of our range because that's where we start to see some really great results in terms of creating these influence districts. And then on the reverse side, we set the ceiling at 31 because when you start going beyond 31, you start to get into some, uh, some messy territory where you start actually dividing some of these really large and important cultural sectors. Again, using the Koreatown example, it's one of our largest communities of interest. 
And that's, again, a, a redistricting term that essentially just means a large concentration of, of individuals who share an identity. Um, and this is our uh, largest kind of Asian community of interest in Los Angeles, which is centered around the Koreatown region. And when you have council expansion, there's new thresholds of how small districts need to be. And when you start to create districts that are, start to create too many districts, that threshold gets smaller and smaller. And so large communities like Koreatown gets cut in half or cut in some weird ways that really undermines a lot of the work that we're trying to do to maximize their ability to elect candidates of choice. And so we have to be mindful of that. And it's a little bit of like a, a strategic chess, some 4D chess essentially of how to move pieces together. So we don't create unintentional harm for one community by trying to help another community. Understanding that it all has to kind of give and take one region to the next because that redistricting has to be equal and it has to be uh, done in a way um, of all districts at the same time. You have to be mindful of if you do something in Koreatown, what is the impact going to be in the San Fernando Valley? What is it going to be in East LA? And what is it going to be in South LA, which is seeing a very big demographic change uh, where we're not having as concentrated of a Black population because of gentrification, because of uh, various other factors where Black residents are more dispersed, um, such as uh, some of our other geographically dispersed communities who are very large populations like our kind of our Native American population in Los Angeles, which has one of the largest populations, but have, again, never seen a council member reflect their identity or advocated for their community. And it's because they don't have that kind of geographic concentration or that density that people tend to think about when it comes to districts. So there's also an opportunity to think about, again, council expansion is not gonna be a silver bullet because there's gonna be a lot of communities that don't get that perfect district, but maybe this could be a starting point for conversations about what other models that we can create outside of city council where folks are able to have their voices heard and have as much kind of sway as the city council does, but in a way that reflects their identity. So can you talk a little bit about how you're actually planning to pursue these changes, like a little bit about the process you guys are pursuing? Is this going to be a prop that will end up on Brent and I's prop guide? Is this going to be something that uh, some body of government has to vote on? Like, how do you actually make changes like this? Yeah, so... This is being explored by the Ad Hoc Committee on City Governance Reform, which is a subsect of our full city council that's been tasked with this amazing once-in-a-lifetime <laughs> opportunity to take this on. Uh, it's chaired by Council Member uh, Paul Krikorian, uh, Council President Paul Krikorian, who um, is a strong advocate for the Independent Redistricting Commission model and wanted to be able to take this on in addition to some of the other reforms that we talked about, such as council expansion or ethics uh, commission reform. Right. He, he himself does seem to be genuinely interested in some sort of change. I think sort of TBD to see what, you know, the council it, as a whole may end up agreeing to. But it, it seems as though there are people on the council who are at least, you know, pretending like they're acting in good faith on some of these changes. Absolutely. I'll just say yes. Um, and so, but you know, that's just how it is. And so this, this committee has to undergo a process of voting and receiving consensus on a recommendation that would then go on to the full city council for a vote uh, to become a, uh, a measure in the city of Los Angeles that the uh, uh, chief legislative analyst uh, and the city attorney would be working closely to develop some of that kind of language there. And so it is kind of a, a tedious process um, for charter reform that goes through kind of a city council model, but it's uh, 
essentially a decision that would still have to be decided by the voters. So uh, city council is not able to kind of propose any sort of significant or any changes to the city charter that we have without voter approval. And so they are just kind of mapping out some of the recommendations using some of the recommendations from some RLA as, uh, along with some other uh, community organizers and some um, uh, uh, academics in the LA governance uh, reform project. Um, and so they're really kind of doing their work to collect as much data and kind of feedback as possible. But uh, what the actual end result may look like is still up in the air. Uh, on September 18th is when the ad hoc committee on city governance reform is uh, intending to finally get that vote on consensus of what is going to be sent to the full city council. Um, and so that might be kind of a full complete package. It might just be some draft language because the city council can also kind of do some uh, mass editing together. So once that's done, it would need to be kind of probably done by uh, before June 2020. Uh, or at the earliest, because uh, that is the time that's needed for it to appear on the 2024 general election ballot. So that is kind of the target uh, that we have is for the November uh, general and 2024. And so uh, I'll be happy to share updates as we get closer to that. But yeah, it's still in the hands of the committee right now. One thing that uh, just before we end I, that I found to be very interesting, sort of as I, you know, was I have learned about this, like, you know, from you and reading about it are, are some of the, you know, potential challenges to getting this through, not just the council, but also, you know, having the language written and getting it on the ballot and selling it to voters. I'm curious if you can talk through some of those challenges, just even in terms of just getting, I mean, even getting the council to agree to this sort of is asking them to a degree to give up some of their power, right? Because they're going to have less constituents. So like, you know, and then there's other issues also, there's budgetary issues. Uh, can you uh, talk about some of those things? Because I found those to be very interesting to me anyway. I could spend all day talking about the challenges <laughs> um, because there are uh, a lot of valid issues that folks have with said concepts of tribal reform. One, it's a very... Um, unfamiliar topic of how this works and what a city charter is and and how it reflects kind of the structure of government the way that we understand it as residents rather than kind of politicians or policy advocates um and so kind of demystifying that process for the biggest hurdle then talking about kind of the need of independent redistricting commission or council expansion or other charter reform are all unique kind of conversations um, Kind of across the board, everyone's in support of anything called independent. Uh, the redistricting commission, uh, an independent redistricting commission, is an even better sell because um, who doesn't want uh, residents rather than elected officials drawing districts that they would be running in? And so it's a very easy conversation, but really some of the hiccups are just thinking through kind of the logistics of operating an independent redistricting commission. It is essentially a kind of a 10-year project that the city has do on a recurring basis. It doesn't stop because once kind of the 10 years are up to the first half for the commission in 2031, uh, it's going to continue for after the next census 2040 and then have to restart again. And so there is a lot to consider about how to really create the perfect process and perfect system. So it's set up for success. And that's a lot of things with budgeting, such staff training, as well as what is the outreach plan and the timeline that they work on. And so that's a that's a struggle there. It's just really trying to figure out all of the uh, ins and outs of making the perfect system, so we don't end up in the same situation where elected officials have their fingers in this process by 
some form of corruption or manipulation. Council expansion is a different conversation. Um, given a lot of the corruption that we just kind of opened up this conversation about with the audio leak, there's a valid complaint about why would you want more council districts so we could have more uh, crooks in the right. in, in, in city hall. Right. You're asking uh, you're asking people to create more politicians. Yeah, and creating more politicians, depending on who you talk to, uh, that can be either a positive or a negative. Well, right. Most often a negative, but for folks that who really rely on their council members, because it's not essentially a politician in the way that we see the president or a, a, a representative in Congress, there is a little bit more of a direct connection. Folks know sometimes who the uh, council members, staff members are that do kind of field outreach, who the field deputies are. And so there's a closer relationship. And so some folks do actually like the idea of having a more accessible politician in terms of a council member. Um, in terms of piece of the numbers. Um, so there is a little bit of kind of uh, more some positive messaging there that seems to be uh, great. And um, yeah, it's just, there's a lot of kind of elements of thinking about what is the perfect process for council expansion because there is essentially, there's no uh, net positive gain in terms of finances when you have council expansion. There's gonna have to be more council offices. There's gonna have to be more staff. and. How, where does that money come from are all realistic questions. And I will say that kind of no one is really exploring exactly where that's at because we're not really there yet. We're still trying to set on the number. And so it's not that we're ignoring that. It's just we're trying to kind of convince ourselves and convince um, the council that our range is the best recommendation. So let's move forward with that. And then we can start having the collective conversations about how we actually set this up. And so there are kind of layers of approaching this and taking this on. And so that's why I have so many challenges that I'm already kind of pre-planning uh, for, um, because it's going to be essentially nonstop. Because once this moves through the committee to the council, it's essentially a campaign for all the nonprofits and organizers that were involved in this to make sure that there's popular education so residents know why this is even going to be on their ballots and what this actually means. And so there, it has to be a large collective effort to really make sure that uh, the messaging is clear, the messaging is effective, and that uh, we really kind of share a uh, consistent through line of why we're doing this and how it was developed in partnership with RLA and uh, uh, the residents of Los Angeles. Can you let people know how they can keep up to date on this? Is there anywhere that they can follow these uh, processes? Absolutely. We have our website, which is rla.org. That's O-U-R-L-A.org. Uh, that's again, an acronym, nonprofits, other acronyms for Organize Unite and Perform LA. Um, I'm bummed that this came out as we wrapped up our last in-person convening because we're actually hosting a number of uh, meetings across the state of Los Angeles where we had uh, a room full of residents who were new to the decision-making process, the policy process, who just wanted to kind of hear about the work that we're doing or folks that are actively involved and wanted to know what is the latest with city council. And we brought that to residents. So they didn't have to kind of go to city council at 10 a.m. on a weekday. We had these in the evenings. We had them with food. We had them with um, either some sort of kind of celebration or event or something that a local site was hosting. And so, um, I'm bummed that I'm not able to promote that, but um, maybe in the future we'll have more of these because again, the work doesn't end with council expansion or independent district commission. This is going to be an ongoing process. We're building momentum of Los Angeles residents 
advocating and essentially successfully changing how policy is shaped in Los Angeles. And so once we get this done, and if where kind of the outcome is, we're ready to take on the next challenge. We're ready to take on, say, campaign finance reform, uh, equity, uh, equity-based budgeting to Los Angeles that's based on a uh, by need rather than a kind of a fair share of the pie model. Uh, we're ready to take on other issues and residents want to make their voices heard. And so maybe in the future, I'll have some community promote. But for now, visit rla.org to learn the latest about what's going on and how the committee and city council is going to be going forward with these two very important issues. And we'll put those in the show notes so people can just check them out uh, via easy link. Thanks, Jeremy. Yeah, yeah thank thanks you for so much for coming me. on. Thank you.